0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Onion Radio News, The Tom Hartman Program, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. And remember kids, just say no to bad policies and then work to overturn them.
1: So, we had a great day in terms of ballot initiatives as Colorado and Washington uh, decided that they were going to legalize pot. Not just medicinal marijuana, but all pot. Uh, that is great news. Uh, war on drugs is insane. And uh, thank God somebody took some action. And I believe that it will be the beginning of the end for them. And apparently uh, the feds agree. So, they're now in a panic and they're trying to figure out how to stop it. So uh, Kevin Sabet is a former advisor to Obama's drug czar. He's against legalization, and he says, quote, This is a symbolic victory for legalization advocates, but it will be short-lived. Because basically he's saying the feds are gonna come for you. In fact, he continues, they're facing an uphill battle uh with implementing this in the face of presidential opposition and in the face of federal enforcement opposition. So Two important parts of that. First of all, the feds are coming for you, and we're not going to let you have your states' rights. We're not going to let you have your laws in Colorado and Washington. Second of all, you mentioned—you notice—he mentioned presidential opposition. Now, wait a minute. I thought President Obama had said that he wasn't going to be concerned about this. That's not how he was going to use Justice Department resources. Now, don't take my word for it. Here's President Obama when he was campaigning back in '8
2: But it's safe to say he wouldn't, wouldn't be. Uh...
3: I, what' I be doing what I'm not gonna be doing is using Justice Department resources uh, to try to circumvent uh, state laws on this issue, simply because I want folks to be investigating violent crimes and potential terrorism. <laughs> We've got a lot of things for our uh, law enforcement officers to deal with.
1: Well, apparently, he wasn't telling the truth there because he went on to break records in number of uh, pot dispensary raids. Uh, more so than even George W. Bush. He reappointed uh, a czar that was left over from the Bush administration. She's a massive right winger who's now the head of the DEA. Uh, she's the one on the crusade to go after all these states that have, in fact, legalized pot, whether it's medicinal or, in this case, now finally just any old pot. So here are the four different ways that the feds are going to go after the states now they're going to sue the, uh, to block parts of the measure, they're going to send threatening letters to marijuana shops. Uh, you know, of course, threatening arrests, seizures of their property, etc. They're gonna do street level clampdowns, which they've already been doing in California and in other states, against things that are perfectly legal within those states, and they're gonna send warning letters to the states governors. Hey, you better play ball, otherwise you're gonna be in a lot of trouble. Now, uh Colorado has a Democratic governor and he said he was opposed to this measure. But since it has passed, he says he will enforce it. Let's see how that turns out. Jay Inslee looks like he's gonna win the governorship in Washington. He's in a very close race that has not been called yet. He again, of course, since he's a Democrat, is opposed to his constituents and says he was opposed to the measure. Uh but again will say he will enforce whatever the citizens of his state decide. But will they change their minds when President Obama says, no, be more right wing, crush this. Attempt to circumvent the war on drugs, which has been nothing but a gigantic failure for decades and decades. I'm glad we got change. I'm glad we got a progressive in office. Um, so, by the way, does uh, President Obama have some sort of instinct on, hey, you know what, maybe it's going to work in Colorado and Washington, uh, but it, it can't work across the country? Uh, this is an uh, unpopular measure. Are you kidding me? First of all, in Colorado, it was enormously popular. It might have helped get uh, President Obama elected. Yeah, because of some of the people who voted for legalization voted for President Obama, which in some ways might have been a mistake because he's against legalization 100%. But across the country, it's not just Colorado and Washington, 50% are in favor of legalization and only 46% are opposed. But well, that has never stopped a Democrat from being a right winger anyway. So, why on God's green earth is this guy who said he would not? Go after the states if they legalize pot. Going to do this because he's center right in his nature. He's pro-establishment. He's anti-change. I've told you that a million times, and Democrats can't get it through their head. Yes, he's not as radical as other Republicans. Okay, but he is in in essence a Republican. Look at this. He took one of the most radical people in the Bush administration, made her the head of the DA when there was no gain in it. it. It doesn't help him politically. It's just in his nature. Now, here's what I propose for all those conservatives who told me all those years that they believed in states rights, now all of a sudden when Colorado and Washington say, "Hey, we should legalize, or we have legalized pot," they say, "Get no way. I, screw states rights. We don't believe in states rights, right? Including the conservative President Obama. Well, I need you to take a pledge. If you're going to say that you're going to completely and utterly ignore the states' rights of Colorado and Washington, it's fine. All you gotta do is sign this pledge. Say, um, I have never actually believed in states' rights. Every time I mentioned it, I was lying. I promise to never ever mention it again as long as I shall live. I mean, you gotta agree with that, right? Apparently, if you say they vote for a ballot initiative and this is the state wanting to do this, and I say I don't give a damn about your states' rights and I wanna enforce my opinion on your state no matter what your citizens think, you apparently never believed in states' rights. In the first place. And of course, that is exactly the case with all of these conservative frauds, and apparently with President Obama. By the way, I, you know, one last thing. What does it take to get this guy to turn around? When he's running for office, whether it was 08 or 2012, a progressive lion roaring throughout the country. And whenever he gets in office, I mean we're going to get to it in the third block, the grand bargain. Give it away the Queen, giving it away, right? But in this case too why how does this help you politically and you just beat the republicans nope nope no i'm gonna threaten them in eighteen different ways
4: Have to hold your head higher than your heart. You better-
5: This is the list of rum that is sold in the state of Utah. This is the full list of light rum, white rum, that you can buy in Utah, the kind of rum you use to make a daiquiri. It's an okay list, it's not great if you're a big rum fan, but I gotta tell you, it is better than the mezcal list. Look, this is all the mezcal that you can get in the state of Utah, that's it, those two, legally. Even though one of the one of the two Mezcals you can get apparently has illegal as its brand name, this is all that you can legally get as far as it goes mez- Mezcal uh, in the state of Utah. However, um, if you have a kind of rum or a kind of Mezcal or even a label of wine that you would like to be able to get, but that isn't on the Utah State list, you can request it from the state government. You click on the little shopping cart there on their website. It takes you to the special orders page where you can ask your state government to please buy you some better mezcal or whatever. You have to ask them, though. They do try to be helpful. There's a whole section of the state government's website about uh, how to best pair the wines of the state of Utah with various types of food. And this is not like a tourism thing. This is not an export thing. This is not just wines made in Utah. It's wines from everywhere, but the state has to get them for you used to be that there was a state employee in Utah whose job it was to taste every alcohol, every wine, every whiskey that the state was considering allowing into the state to be sold. I don't know if there still is someone who has that job, but it wasn't that long ago. It's because in Utah, the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control is not only tasked with enforcing liquor laws in the state, doing things like giving out liquor licenses, they also choose which wines and beers and spirits the citizens of the state of Utah may purchase. The state government, on behalf of its residents, tastes wine and decides if it is good enough for Utah. The way that the states deal with booze is really weird. I've always thought that it's mostly because we had a long, strange, national failed experiment called Prohibition that was not all that long ago, from which we really haven't quite totally recovered. When Prohibition ended in 1933, Americans could legally buy and sell and drink booze for the first time in 13 years. And people were obviously psyched when Prohibition ended, but there was a lot of policy to figure out in terms of how the country was going to sell and regulate alcohol. Would cities do it? Would states do it? The federal government? Should you have to apply for a license to sell alcohol? How? old should you have to be in order to drink alcohol? States came up with their own answers to those questions. And the laws between the states, even all these decades later, are still really diverse. Today for example, 18 states are called control states, which means they control the wholesale and in most cases retail sales of alcohol. That's why in a control state like Utah, the state chooses your wines for you and helpfully will help you pair them with your dinner. Weirdly, the state of Maryland is not a control state, but there is one county in the state, Montgomery County, that does it that way too, a little, little, a little tasty Utah in the middle of Maryland. The heterogeneity um, on these issues isn't just between places that have state stores for booze and states that don't have state stores. I mean, in some places, you can buy beer or wine or even the hard stuff at your average Rite Aid or your average gas station. In some places, you can buy beer at a gas station, but spirits have to come from one of those state stores that looks like a prison, right? There there are all of these different levels of control on the sale and distribution of booze, up to and including the state becoming the retailer that sells you the booze. And now, that is about to happen with pot, too. Sort of. Um, Three states had wide-ranging new rules about pot on the ballot this year. Not about medical marijuana, but just about recreational use of marijuana. Uh, The measures passed in Washington and in Colorado, but not in Oregon, which is interesting given that Oregon is an even more blue state than Colorado is. But Oregon was voting on something slightly different. The model of the the state-run store that sells all the liquor in the state, the Utah model, right? That is what Oregon was considering for pot. The idea that the state would regulate people growing pot, regulate people processing it, like drying it and packaging it and getting ready to be sold. And in Oregon, the proposal was that the state itself would buy all of the pot in the state and then sell that pot to Oregon residents, presumably at stores that look like prisons, like they do with whiskey in North Carolina and Utah and a bunch of other states, too. That model of how to deal with legalized pot is what was rejected in Oregon this year. But what was accepted in Colorado and Washington State, on the other hand, was a proposal that the states, those states should license and regulate people to grow marijuana, license and regulate people to process it and prepare it for sale. But then, in Colorado and Washington, what they said is that the state should also regulate normal businesses, private for-profit stores to operate like regular liquor stores, like regular businesses, selling this newly legal product that will be regulated and taxed by the state. That is the proposal that won by 10 points in Colorado and by 12 points in Washington state. According to these ballot initiatives, it will not be illegal to buy or possess less than an ounce of pot if you're over the age of 21. So, on paper at least, the idea is that pot will now be regulated much the same way that alcohol is. But the really important difference is, the really important difference is, that according to the federal government, and therefore for the whole United States of America everywhere, according to the federal government, it is still illegal to possess or buy or sell pot. And that is just as much the law as these new state laws are that say quite the opposite. So what's going to happen here? Is it legal or not? Is it going to be legal to buy and sell and smoke pot in Colorado and Washington, or is it not? We are not the only ones asking this question. The people in charge are asking this question, too. The governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, has indicated that he also has no idea how this is going to work. On election day, he put out a statement reminding Coloradans that under federal law, pot is still illegal, and so Colorado residents should hold off on the Cheetos and goldfish for the time being. In Washington state, the outgoing governor there, Chris Gregoire, met with the federal deputy attorney general today to try to figure out how this is going to be handled, this direct conflict between federal and state law. Meanwhile, prosecutors in the two largest counties in Washington state have taken matters into their own hands. They have dropped hundreds of cases of pot possession in that case, hundreds of criminal cases have been dropped. The King County prosecutor says there's no point in continuing to seek criminal penalties for conduct that will be legal next month. True enough, however, in the same state, out in the eastern part of Washington state, in Spokane County. Prosecutors there say they plan to keep arresting people just as they do now for pot-related offenses. Their argument out in Spokane is that the only legal way to get pot in Washington, even after this new state law goes into effect, will be to buy that pot from a state-regulated pot store. And those state-regulated pot stores don't exist yet, but they might soon be created if the federal government allows that to happen and nobody knows that the federal government will allow that to happen. This is policy soup. And I do not mean that as a munchies joke. We've all had enough of those. This just literally does not make any sense yet. Joining us now for the interview is Neil Franklin. He's the executive director of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. He served in law enforcement for 30 years as a narcotics officer with the Maryland State Police and as commander of training for the Baltimore Police Department. Uh, Mr. Franklin, it's very good to have you here tonight. Thanks for joining us.
6: Rachel, thanks for having me. What a great lead-in.
5: Oh, let me ask you first. You are more familiar with these laws than I am. Did I? Did I basically get the contours of that right? Do you feel like the comparison with alcohol prohibition is appropriate here?
6: Absolutely. It it is appropriate. It was the states back in 1933 that ended alcohol prohibition. They were the ones that took the initiative to move the federal government towards change.
5: You are a supporter, I know, of the decriminalization of marijuana. Um, With your background in in law enforcement, specifically working in narcotics law enforcement, how how did you come to this political point of view?
6: Well, it it didn't happen overnight, but there was one key moment uh, back in 2000, October. Um, I had just retired from the Maryland State Police the year before went to work for Baltimore Police Department as a commander of training. And a good friend of mine and comrade, Ed Totley, was working undercover for the Maryland State Police. He was assigned to an FBI task force in Washington, D.C., and he was buying drugs from a mid-level drug dealer this time the drug dealer decided that he wanted to keep both the mug, drugs and the money and he executed uh, Ed Totley right on the spot he shot him in the side of the head and uh, that made me start to think i thought back to marcellus ward who was working undercover for the baltimore police department when i was back in the 80s he was killed in a similar manner um, A couple officers in Baltimore City were killed right on the street by drug dealers. But then, just a couple years after Ed Totley's assassination, the Dawson family of seven right here in Baltimore were murdered one night by a drug dealer who occupied the corner right outside their home. The mother was working with the police, being a good citizen, and he set their home on fire early one morning because he disagreed with her interfering with his marketplace. That was my turning point.
5: When you talk to people who disagree with you on this issue, when you try to make the case for decriminalization, how do you explain why incidents of violence like that that you've lived through, people that you know and have worked with and have seen as colleagues who have died in the line of fire in this war on drugs, how do you make the case that decriminalization would get rid of that sort of horrific violence?
6: Well, let's be clear, not decriminalization, because all that does is remove the criminal penalty from possession. You still would have your uh, illicit trade, the drug dealers on the street, the yeah. cartel in Mexico. Legalization, with regulation and control, is what we want to do. We want to move, remove this completely from the hands of criminal gangs and the cartel. That will affect the violence. That's when the violence goes down.
5: In terms of what's been uh, just approved by the voters in in Colorado and in Washington state, it seems unclear to me now what's going to happen in these states, where it's state law is in opposition to federal law. How do you think that law enforcement uh, is going to handle this? And ultimately, is this a decision that's made at the political level or at the law enforcement level?
6: Well, it's it's made at both levels. And I think this is a win-win for police. In Seattle, the police chief has already said that they're not going to, arrest people for possession of marijuana anymore even though the law doesn't take effect until december it's a win-win because it has been drug prohibition like with marijuana that has driven a wedge in between police and community number one police can get back to the business that they want to do of what they want to do and that is to protect people from violent people rape robbery murder crimes against our children domestic violence we can get back to the business of that we didn't, most of us didn't sign on this job to arrest people for smoking pot. It will repair, it gives us an opportunity to repair the damage that has been done between police and community. You know, racial profiling, the foundation for racial profiling today in this country is the drug war. And the drug war just doesn't work anymore. There's not one piece of it that works. We have more drugs in our community than ever before. It's very costly. Four decades, $1.3 trillion. Our prisons are bursting at the seams, mainly with black and brown people. We need a change, and it's time for the president to lead on this one.
5: Neil Franklin, Executive Director of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, uh, a three-decade-long career in law enforcement. Uh, Sir, thank you very much for your time tonight. You speak with uncommon authority on this subject. Thank you.
6: Thank you, Rachel.
0: It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support.
3: It's The Onion Radio News. LaSalle, Illinois, still awaits a much-fabled drug shipment. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Weeks have turned into months as residents of LaSalle, Illinois, look anxiously forward to a long-discussed drug shipment from Mexico via St. Louis. Talk of the shipment began in August, and incredible tales of this amazingly potent primo grass have sustained the substance-abusing community. Resident stoner William Osala. My cousin, at bought Bloomington's, sm- some, and it knocked him on his ass. Meanwhile, the people of LaSalle plan to continue smoking the same nasty ditch weed and shake they have grown accustomed to over this long, dry spell. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Oh,
2: you three wise men, please demur. Behold a plant that smokes more sweetly than either frankincense or myrrh. in this manger This herb is mild yet it is strong And it brings peace to friend and stranger Goodwill to men lies in this bar And now my wonder weed is
1: flaring
5: Are you high
1: it like
2: that special
3: star
1: above. So Americans uh what do they think about the war on drugs well we got some indication of that because in Colorado and Washington they just passed ballot initiatives legalizing pot not just medicinal marijuana but overall uh well Rasmussen which is a conservative polling organization just did a poll and they're going to show us of course that most Americans are not in favor of that uh so uh, are we winning the war on drugs so obviously most Americans will say yes what sick what happened only seven percent of Americans believe we are winning the war on drugs. Eighty-two percent believe we're losing, and twelve percent are confused. Eighty-two percent believe we're losing the war on drugs. You know why? Because we're losing the war on drugs. Look, it got officially launched as, and as explained in the past, in 1971, Nixon was like, "All right, let's do a war on drugs." In fact, he commissioned a report. The report said, "No, it's actually." not as bad as alcohol.
7: Yes, the Schaefer report. You guys should definitely look into it. Because he Nixon himself commissioned that report. Uh Governor Schaefer did the report which proves it's not as bad. Nixon took it, ripped it up and said, "I don't care. I'm still going to be strict when it comes to uh drug policy, especially on marijuana."
1: Now, what has happened in the meanwhile? Right now, uh, our cost for the war on drugs is estimated at 20 to 25 billion dollars a year. But that does not count prosecution and incarceration for drug offenders. Which is the lion's share. So, even not counting that is costing us a tremendous amount of money. Now, are we spending too much or too little on it? Well, the jury's in on that as well. 23% say not enough, uh, and 34% say we're spending too much money on it. Again, there's a significant chunk that are confused. Okay. Um, now, how about alcohol versus pot? You know, the thing that Nixon got the report on and then yeah. threw it away anyway. In fact, in Colorado, they ran all these ads saying, "Hey, you know what uh, this uh, alcohol is no different than pot, and a lot of people believe them. It turns out nationwide i 'm actually the most surprised by these numbers when they asked dangers of alcohols compared to marijuana fifty one percent said alcohol is more dangerous twenty four only twenty four percent said pot is more dangerous once again twenty four percent confused
7: yeah let's let's discuss that for just one second because i know we've brought this point up before but how many people have died from alcohol poisoning versus the number of people that have died from uh, overdose of marijuana
1: you know as far as i know I. There literally are no cases of marijuana overdose.
7: There's no such thing as dying from a marijuana overdose. Uh, I, I, I forget the exact number, uh, but there was one politician who uh, looked into how much pot you would have to smoke within five minutes in order to die, and it was like pounds and pounds of marijuana. Like it's impossible to even consume that much, that copious amount of marijuana in five minutes.
1: If you ate any. Anything of that much in that amount of time, you would die. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, in fact, you literally couldn't do it. Uh, your stomach might explode. So, so it just doesn't. It's not true. And it, but what's great about that is that that's it. The American people are onto it. They're like, yeah. After all these years of lie on top of lie, propaganda on top of propaganda from our government, we've had enough. We know alcohol is more dangerous. Pot is less dangerous. We know we spent too much. We know we're never going to quote unquote win this war on drugs. And here's one last interesting thing. Eighty-eight percent of respondents hadn't smoked pot in the last year, so it's not like these are potheads. who are like, yeah, man, I just want to get high. They're people like us. Uh, I haven't smoked pot in the last year, and I just don't smoke it. Right? It's not that I've never smoked it, but I never got a high off of it. I don't care, so I don't smoke pot. Uh, that's not why. It's asinine. That's why I'm against the war on drugs, and let alone what this doesn't survey, which is the fifty, sixty thousand. Dead people in Mexico because of this insane war on drugs, which I know America's like, "Ah, Mexico. but I care and a lot of people in this country care about what we're doing to other countries with our insanity on war on drugs. But as I look at this, Anna, I think TikTok, tock, we're going to win, they're going to lose, we're going to legalize.
3: And here we go
2: There's nothing left to choose And here we go. There's nothing left to
8: Norm Stamper is on the line with us. He is a member of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition Leap, L E A P dot C C is the website. He is the former chief of the Seattle Police Department and an author. Uh, chief Stamper, welcome! Welcome back to the program.
9: Thanks. It's good to be back with you.
8: Thank you very much. Uh, I, I, an author. What What is the title of your most recent book?
9: Uh... Breaking Rank: A Top Cop's Exposé of the Dark Side of American Policing.
8: Thank you. I I, I should have had that written down there and and uh, available right. in all the usual suspects uh, bookstores and whatnot. I'm mean, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Okay. Great. Um, Norm Stamper. The uh, the states of Washington and Colorado have now said pot is legal in our state. We have become Amsterdam. Uh, Amsterdam. Uh, allows I. I told the story uh, nine eleven. The airlines were offering super cheap flights, free, virtually free. I could use miles, so Louise and I, and our three kids went to uh, Amsterdam for 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 the Christmas. You know, in the month after nine eleven. And we got a $400 a night room at the Marriott for $112 a night. I mean, nobody was flying. Everybody was scared. Sure. We, had, we had this wonderful time. Went into the fanciest restaurant right across the street from the Rijksmuseum and from the big uh, casino there in the fancy part of Amsterdam. White linen tablecloth. Sat down at the restaurant with our all three of our kids are over 21. They're all adults. Um, sat down with our three kids and uh, the waiter brings oh it comes over you know with the, the 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 cloth over his arm and the menu and he says here sir is the wine menu and he hands me a menu and he says and here's the pot menu and he hands me a menu <laughs> this is now it's technically illegal in holland but this is this was our experience in probably one of the five finest restaurants in in uh, amsterdam back in in 2001 and uh, so, is that the situation now that Washington and Colorado? I mean, what? How's this playing out? And and how are the how are the police departments responding to this? And what's you know what's Leap doing about this? I'm just curious. The whole thing. What's going on here?
9: Well, I I, I think that you know Tuesday produced some very obvious winners and losers, uh, and the losers are the drug cartels, the street gangs, and those really on both sides of the law who uh, profit from mass incarceration and the winners of the rest of us mm-hmm. taxpayers police officers advocates for um, community safety and yeah. social justice
8: and not necessarily potheads and not necessarily potheads
9: at all we're talking about a civil liberties issue we're talking about a public health and safety issue we know for example that marijuana is much safer than alcohol and it's healthier than tobacco. Uh and the fact that it was prohibited for all of those decades I think is a uh, testament to our uh our, our our willingness to turn the other way when it comes to common sense and science.
8: Well, it's also so, a testimony to the power of the diesel industry and the sure, paper paper and are. wood industry. Yeah. But anyway, pardon my interrupting. To you.
9: answer your question, I think police officers Across this state, and I'm assuming in Colorado as well, uh, are much relieved. Uh, for, for many of them, uh, making very low level, nonviolent, uh, marijuana busts was a waste of time. Uh, and you couldn't afford to, you know, just turn your back on it because that begins to suggest, uh, corruption or, right. uh, you know, the kind of, uh, uh policing that relies on <clears throat> excessively on discretion. Mm-hmm. You can't leave it up to beat cops to make those decisions. This is a decision that the electorate had to make, and I'm just so glad that uh, that ours did.
8: Yeah, yeah. And this is—I mean, this—this this, my 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 personal experience with this is somewhat limited. But in the, I think it was '69 was the year, as I recall, um, which would have been the first year of the Nixon presidency. One of my very, very best friends from high school. Was arrested with a relatively small amount of pot, but it wasn't an insignificant amount, in in Michigan, and this was the height of the drug hysteria, the drug laws, the 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 war on drugs, all this kind of stuff. He they threw the book at him to make an example. I mean, he he got he drew two years in prison and 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 served two years in in the state prison. And when he came out, I didn't know him. I mean, yeah. he was he was broken. Yeah. And we are doing that routinely. Uh, particularly to people of color, but uh, you know it, pretty much to anybody who gets caught up in the machine and and uh, I just do you have any sense of how many lives have been destroyed by by this uh, what is it about a seventy year experiment with prohibition eighty year experiment with prohibition
9: well it, it certainly does go that far back, but as you mentioned uh, un, un, during the nixon administration when when uh, President Nixon proclaimed drugs public enemy number one and declared all-out war on them. We have spent $1 trillion. We have incarcerated tens of millions of Americans for nonviolent, very low-level drug offenses. And, you know, I I just say to people, use your imagination. How many of those lives have been uh, damaged, if not ruined, as a a result of a criminal arrest? And I, I think it's safe to conclude that the drug war has caused far more harm than good. I I think it's the worst uh, you know, social policy since slavery and Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's uh, high time we did what we did on Tuesday in those two states. It's uh right. it's for me it's the beginning of the end of the drug war and I'll tell you the truth, I never thought I'd say that in my time.
8: You know, I think so too. I think that much like the early cracks in segregation were Brown versus Board in 1954 and and forced busing in the early sixties, but it really hit its, and and even the Civil Rights acts in the in the mid sixties, you know we're, we saw the full fruition of this with the with the nomination and successful election to the president of the United States of a man of color, in uh, yeah. Barack Obama. It took basically a generation or two generations, but once that tipping point was passed, there was no turning back. and And I think looking back on it, that tipping point probably was between fifty four and sixty. and it feels to me like this is a similar tipping point right now and the first political party that seriously gets behind this um whether it's the libertarian wing of the of the republican party or the pothead wing of the de- democratic party or just the rational wing of the democratic party they're going to start winning elections like there's no tomorrow
9: there there is no question about that young people overwhelmingly supported uh, the uh, the electorate's decisions in Colorado in Tuesday last, uh, excuse me, and in Washington last Tuesday, and and given that demographic and the uh, the the fact that e- even among other age groups and across the country, we're now at fifty percent approval for legalizing marijuana. Mm. Well, back to nineteen sixty nine, the figure uh, at that time when Gallup first did its poll was twelve percent support. Wow, and all the rest opposed, uh, and certainly that reversal has been a long time in coming. But it, as you point out, it's it is not reversible. What we will see is more and more support for sane and sensible drug laws. And you're right, if if political parties will uh, wise up to that fact, they're they're bound to uh, reap the benefits for years to come.
8: Yeah, I absolutely think so. Is there any indication we're talking with Norm Stamper? He's a member of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition Leap. Dot .cc is their website. He is the former chief of the Seattle Police Department and the author of the title of your book again,
9: Breaking Rank.
8: Breaking Rank. And uh, uh Chief Stamper, in the minute we have left, do you uh, do, do you or any of the members of Leap get, have any sense of what the Obama administration is going to do about this? Uh, w-
9: the, the the short answer is no. We really don't. Uh, we have attempted to appeal to the Obama administration on a number of occasions, uh, even even marched on the Drug Czar's office here mm-hmm. about a year ago. Uh, to this is cops marching. Report. and we got and we got uh, we got the cold shoulder. Uh, and and it's interesting because of course my successor in Seattle as police chief was Gil Kurlikowski, who's now our Drug Czar. Mm. I think for years the attitude has been, don't talk to the other side, don't talk to the drug policy reformers. And I, I think it's safe to say now they have to talk to us.
3: It's The Onion Radio News. Little Tobacco is hit with a three point dollars lawsuit. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The Buckhead Tobacco Corporation, along with three other small cigarette manufacturers, braced for a protracted court fight today after a $350 class action lawsuit was filed against Little Tobacco in a Detroit civil court. Lead prosecuting attorney Stanley Green made this opening statement against the makers of Hamtramck Smooths and... East Point
0: cigarettes. Carbon copies of internal memos show their intent to advertise on small backcountry roads where children are known to occasionally ride their bikes.
3: The $3,500 award would go toward reimbursing its 11 year old victim and removing the cigarette vending machine from the break room of a Detroit area Safeway. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio. Get out the way, Mr. Widget. Short, short tips. No, I won't your lips right
5: now. And baby, hey down my spine but do you leave my mind to you and you're looking pretty
10: suspicious they're probably planning a heist
2: he's wanting to go to the strippers it makes
4: him feel all nice a yeah. cigarette
5: best new thing in the world today. If you are a liberal, you like to believe that government can be a force for good. That yeah, nobody likes bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake and everybody likes free enterprise, but government is capable of good and important work. Like Medicare, for example. In effect, Medicare is the government insurance company for 50 million Americans. And people are happier with Medicare and Medicare is much cheaper to administer than all of the private insurance plans that everybody else has to use. Medicare works well. It's a part of government that works well. Another example, uh, the mayor's office in Newark, New Jersey. If there is a tree down on the wires in front of your house, uh, did you see some homeless people suffering through the storm under a Newark overpass and they need help? Are you stranded with a baby and the power's been off too long? Tell the mayor's office in Newark, New Jersey, tell Newark Mayor Cory Booker, and he will come sort it out for you personally. Honestly, he will be there in about five minutes. He'll take care of it. He will bring your bored baby a toy. Sometimes government works well in in very big ways and in very small ways. But government very rarely works very well in ways that are also very funny. All right, here's the situation. Right now, nobody knows if it's legal or illegal to smoke pot or possess pot in the states of Colorado or Washington. And that's because on election night, measures to legalize pot for personal use in both of those states passed by 10 points and 12 points, respectively. So in state law, it's legal. But federal law, which applies to the whole country, including those two states, federal law still says pot is illegal. So which is it in Colorado and Washington? We don't know. Enter the Seattle Police Department. On the Seattle Police Department's blog, they have posted this new, I guess, official police document. It's called Marriage of What Now? (laughs) A Guide to Legal Marijuana Use in Seattle. And it's clear answers to simple questions that everybody's asking. Questions like, where can you smoke pot now in Seattle? The answer, you can certainly use marijuana in the privacy of your home. How about this one? What if the Seattle police had seized a bunch of your marijuana before the law changed? Can you get that seized marijuana back from the police? Uh, One word answer to that one is no. How about this one? Will Seattle's finest help federal agents with criminal cases that involve small amounts of pot? There's a longer answer and more legalese in this one, but here again, the answer is no. This, my friends, is a public service. And it's called Marriage of What Now? (laughs) Everything you always wanted to know about the complicated laws about pot now in Seattle as presented by an alternative newspaper guy who now blogs for the Seattle Police Department um, along with this guy who is himself an actual cop. They did this together. And they closed their online Marriage of What Now post um, with this video clip from the Lord of the Rings. Seriously. (laughs) Seattle Police Department This is a needed service. Nobody has been able to figure out what the law is, and what you have done to help people figure out what the law is makes sense, and it is funny, and it has Gandalf in it for no good reason other than the fact that you are being very good-humored about this whole thing while you are providing a needed service. Seattle PD, this one thing about you is the best new thing in the world today.
10: The elections that just passed where voters in Colorado and Washington specifically passed ballot measures that allow people to use marijuana legally. Now, this is a little different than what's happened in the past, where medical marijuana in the past was what some states passed and made legal. And that was sort of the first um breach in the wall of the federal drug policy that has marijuana Diagnosed, diagnosed, is that a good word, Ben? Little little pun there. Uh Ben, of course, uh the most diagnosed person connected with this program, and you all know why. No medical marijuana for you, Ben. Absolutely not. I mean you're already dysfunctional and um disoriented. You don't need any help. In any case, um the first crack in the wall of a federal drug policy that classifies marijuana as a Schedule One drug. For those of you who don't know what that is, Schedule One drugs are the worst drugs we have heroin, cocaine, which used to not be a schedule 1 drug was moved up into there once it became really popular and it was more people than just the rolling stones using it. Um LSD, the most dangerous drugs are schedule 1 drugs. So when states start passing ballot measures that say that patients on their own with a doctor's signature, but apparently some doctors were you know signing like some of these mortgage firms were signing robo mortgages, um but, as soon as they said you could have a schedule, one drug, that was a chink in the armor right there, and now the chink has been made larger by Washington and Colorado's um recent votes on this stuff because this is not medical marijuana, this is you know, for personal recreational use type stuff. Now, I know people might want me to talk about that aspect of it, but we've done show after show after show, I don't know how many shows we've done on drugs, but my basic policy on drugs has always been. That we ought to have some sort of logical system for determining when a drug should be legal or when it should be illegal. Because our current policy in this country, since prohibition was lifted, was that there should be no new drugs. Doesn't matter if it's good, doesn't matter if it's bad, doesn't, you know, we don't even weigh that fact. If there's some new intoxicant that appears on the street tomorrow, We will have some horror stories the next day, and boom, it will be made illegal as soon as possible. That's just been the policy. As a matter of fact, there were people in this country up until about, you know, I don't know. Well, there still are. I mean, there's people that want alcohol illegal and always have been people that want alcohol illegal in this country. And we tried that, remember, for about a decade. I'll never forget um, the classic dragnet with Joe Friday, Sergeant Joe Friday, maybe... Some of you younger folks haven't seen this, but it's good for laughs now. And I remember they had an episode on marijuana, and you have Joe Friday, the old straight laced cop talking to the young marijuana user, and the young marijuana user. He says, Hey, I'm a family man and I hold down a job and I have a, a good wife and child and I'm i I'm I'm doing just fine and if I like to have a little pot at the end of the day, how is that any different from, you know, the alcohol you like to drink at the end of your day? And then Joe Friday, you know, reads him the riot act by saying that um that alcohol is dangerous and that lots of you know societal problems are caused by it and do they really need any more of that with some new drug? And of course, at the end of the episode, the guy whose life's going so well and he just uses a little pot at the end of the day, his child drowns in the bathtub because they were all so high on marijuana that they didn't pay any attention. But the point of the story was that Even the argument made in that episode wasn't that, well, if marijuana is not very dangerous, maybe we should legalize it. It's that, hey, alcohol is perhaps a necessary evil that we can't do away with, and we've tried, and we would if we could, but we don't need any more alcohols, right? I think there ought to be some sort of organized test-based system, you know, a criteria that you look at and you say, oh, some new drug's just been invented in some guy's bathtub or some chemist's lab, and here's what it does to people, here's how, you know, much... The potential for abuse, you know, stacks up against other drugs we know about. And, you know, down the list, And at the very end, there's a score. And if you score above or below, whatever the criteria is, that score, you're either legal or illegal. Makes some rational sense. What doesn't make rational sense is the way we do things now. Marijuana is a Schedule One drug, ladies and gentlemen, and that's absurd. And no one in their right mind will get up there and defend why it's a Schedule I drug, which leads me to why I like this topic. I like the confrontation. I like that the federal government is being pushed up against a wall and forced to defend this stuff. Their policy is to simply repeat the mantra and not talk about the merits, pros, cons, or questions at all. When asked over and over about how they're going to respond to the will of the voters in Colorado and Washington, they'll say things like, well, you know, federal policy still dictates this is a schedule one drug and blah, blah, blah. And the federal state uh, primacy of federal laws and blah, blah. But nobody's addressing, Hey, here's what voters want. Maybe federal drug policy is out of step. Maybe marijuana shouldn't be a schedule one drug. They don't go into that at all. Now I should point out that this isn't a question that is specific to the drug issue. This is symbolic of how the whole federal government has become when it comes to the question of hashing these issues out with the public, whatever it is. And I don't want you to think this is a Barack Obama thing. This is a trend that's been getting worse for years. Multi presidents, just worse with everyone. This idea that we kind of hold these, you know, questions in secret meetings and whatnot and We don't really talk about the deliberations, and we don't really explain things to the American people. We don't have a national debate, is what we used to call it, about these things. And the president doesn't hold some sort of, you know, address to the nation where he explains his thinking about why marijuana should or shouldn't stay a Schedule I drug. We just dictate from on high. It's a Schedule I drug. The states don't have any right to preempt federal law. Uh, We're weighing our options right now. We're not going to tell you exactly what we're going to do about enforcing this. And then they just do stuff. And you remember... President Obama, when he first got elected, said he was going to tell the Department of Justice to hold off on raiding medical marijuana facilities, and they did it anyway. And the president never had to then have the follow-up questions about, didn't you say you weren't going to do this? It just disappears into the explanation ether. I love that this is one of those issues that shoves the federal government up against the imaginary wall And says, you know, gets in their faces, what are you going to do about it? And what are you going to say about it? How are you going to justify what you are going to do about it? Explain yourself to the American people. If you think this stuff should stay illegal and you think the voters of Washington and the voters of Colorado are wrong, tell us why. And don't just say because federal law trumps state law. Why is federal law the same way now when it comes to something like marijuana as it was in the first two decades of the 20th century? This goes back, folks, to stuff you know, in the nineteen nineteens. I mean, this is post World War One anti drug hysteria that had a lot to do with things like racism, and we're sticking to it now, and we're not justifying why the you know approach that was so irrational and racism based and everything else from Henry Anslinger's time and before is still relevant now. We're just saying it's a Schedule I drug. Uh, you know, you can't be federal law, Trump state law. And we just, we don't go into the actual merits of the case, I guess you could say. Now, you remember I was telling you about soul searching from the GOP and ways if the Republican Party wanted to change to become relevant again. And we talked about how parties sometimes make these big turns after losses. You know you see it with um well, you saw it when Reagan changed the Republicans into into a more gold watery and type gold watery and Ben goldwater what would you say that type party in nineteen eighty when the Democrats changed uh, between nineteen sixty eight and nineteen seventy two this happens all the time um, what if the g o p seized upon this now, I realize Ben, this is crazy because the guy who's holding up hearings is this Lamar Smith guy in Texas who's you know crazy against this kind of stuff, but what if the GOP used this as a states' rights question? Because that's always been a big GOP thing, right? Let the states experiment. You can read your George Will conservative columnist. He'll talk about the states as laboratories and the founding fathers. And all this. What if you turned around and said that the GOP maybe still thinks marijuana should be illegal, but they still think that states' rights in this case should trump what the feds are telling the states to do, that the states need enough freedom to carve out a little bit of their own existence, right? And by the way, I should say, I do believe, I didn't save them, I don't have them in front of me, I do believe I've read a column here or a column there by conservatives who've hinted at this. Imagine what the GOP could do if all of a sudden they moved to I I don't think it's a left or right question, Ben. Let's just say the more green side of the question than President Obama himself. What if President Obama was more anti-marijuana legalization than the new and improved um mellow GOP? The mellow elephant, Ben. We'll call him the mellow elephant. Um I know, that's silly. And people are going, Dan, you've lost your mind now. You must be smoking marijuana yourself. I'm not, but I'm thinking folks about Younger generation Republicans. Remember, there was that great line. Who was it who said it? Was it Karl Rove, Ben, who said that the um, Republicans were not creating enough angry white males to sustain electoral victories into the future? In other words, their base is dying off. Well, there's a whole new group of conservatives out there coming up and a whole new group of people who could be if they agreed more with the policies. The policies look a little like old people policies in a lot of cases. If you want to reinvent yourself as a party, maybe finding some of these issues that can somehow be morphed, twisted, and molded into traditional conservative themes, like allowing the states to have more freedom to experiment, and use that. Make the marijuana issue simply an excuse to argue in a way that people might find resonating. You think that's some sort of pun, Ben? It's not. Um... You know, about a a traditional conservative issue. You should be allowed in your state to have marijuana because that's what the people in your state voted for. And we conservatives feel that people should be allowed to have the latitude to make those decisions at the state level, right? We don't think the federal government should be coming in telling you how to run things. Now, by the way, don't you remember the Ronald Reagan line about getting the government off your back? It was one of the most popular phrases he ever used. When he ran both times for president, let's get the federal government off your back. Now, never mind that he was a drug warrior extraordinaire, right? But imagine if getting the government off your back, that traditional conservative Republican message could be combined with a younger, hipper, more popular among the youth message of, you know, allowing people in the individual states to make decisions on this kind of stuff for themselves. If the conservative people in Oklahoma don't want marijuana, they don't have to have it. If Lamar Smith in Texas wants to keep it a felony in Texas, that's fine, too. But we Republicans feel like the voters in, I was going to say Oregon, but we didn't elect that. Uh, we didn't pass that thing, Ben, but but they did in Washington and Colorado. If we conservatives, if the people in Washington and Colorado feel like this is what they want to do, we support the state's rights to develop in their own way. Now is this going to happen? Well, absolutely not. But when was the last time either party really took my advice about anything? Are they even listening, Ben? Have you been sending out, you know, every show that we do right to the White House? Oh, oh they're taping it themselves. You don't have to. They told you that they were paying attention. I have a feeling somewhere we're archived in some giant um, facility that just saves controversial podcasts. They've got us. Um, they've got it. They're monitoring. As a matter of fact, maybe half our audience is a uh, federal agents writing down everything we say in Esperanto. Um, Nonetheless, folks, the key to this whole thing, as I said, is the confrontation question. I am rooting for the government to explain its thinking. I'm not rooting for an answer, by the way. I'm not saying they have to come down pro or con on any of these things, whether it's drones, war on terror policy, drugs, any of them. My standards are so low. I just want you to explain yourself. We're becoming more imperious as a government where we simply say. Here's the ruling. We're not explaining the ruling. Here it is. I mean, you watch how the government goes to the Supreme Court, folks. In the old days, most of the time when the federal government had to deal with the Supreme Court, they would go in there and have their lawyers and the members of the judiciary say to the court, here's why we feel what we feel A, B, C, D, E. More often than not these days, the government goes in and tries to claim that the plaintiffs or whatever that the court's ruling on don't have standing. In other words, We're not going to argue the merits of what they bring up. We're going to argue that they don't have a right to bring it up at all. Many of the recent court cases where many of us are dying to hear what the government's position is on these subjects get frustrated because they go in and don't give it to you. You think we're finally going to get a showdown here. We're going to find out what the government thinks about this. And they go in and say, um it's our contention that the plaintiffs don't have standing well what do you feel about the issue uh, we feel that the plaintiffs don't have standing we'd like you to dismiss the case because we feel like they don't have a legal right to bring it so as i've said to you before my standards have fallen very low i want legislators who are honest not i don't care as much about their positions as i care about okay i want you to be honest and not corrupt and i want the government to explain their thinking and come out and defend it I don't care so much about what it is. Explain to me why you believe what you believe and then try to defend it. Can you imagine the government getting up there and trying to explain to you today why marijuana should stay a Schedule One drug? Why it's as bad as heroin, cocaine, and LSD? They're not going to do that because they know it's ridiculous. They're simply going to say it's a Schedule I drug. Congress made it a Schedule I drug because it's a Schedule I drug, blah, blah, blah. I think on a whole range of issues, they know that their position, if they came out and debated it openly, is relatively indefensible. So they've decided not to try to debate it openly. And as I said, this is not a President Obama thing, although I feel like it gets worse with every administration. This is a trend that's been getting worse for a long time. You know, Schlesinger wrote that famous book, The Imperial Presidency, in the early 1980s. It's gotten quite a bit worse since then. But an imperial presidency... An imperial government doesn't have to explain what they do. It becomes like one of those parents that says, you know, here's, here's the ruling. I'm not going to explain to you why. I don't have to explain why I'm your dad. I don't have to tell you why I don't want you riding motorcycles. I'm your dad. I say you don't ride motorcycles, so you don't ride motorcycles. That's what this is like to me. And anything that forces the government into a position where they have to explain something rather than just tell you how they rule on it. If it's not positive, Ben, to me it's the best version of any reality show I'm ever going to watch. Forget the Jersey Shore, forget this new one about hill people in West Virginia. The reality show I want to see is the government explains its policies. Boom, I'll get the popcorn, sit down, watch TV, and I will tape all the episodes if I'm going to be out of town. Because in my book, that's must-see TV.
2: Hey Jay, this is Daniel from Los Angeles. Just uh, been listening to the conversations on population control. And it kind of really makes me think about the previous conversations you've been having about white privilege. Because I don't think population control is really an issue. Because even though the world is 7 billion strong... You know, most of the world doesn't create as much pollution, as much carbon and really as much damage as we do here in America and the Western world. So, you know, the world can handle seven billion Americans. The rest of the world is, you know, there's a lot of adject poverty, in the I think it's rather offensive to think that, you know, we should blame them and say, well, they, you know, their population controls being out of hand when in reality the state of the world can really be blamed a lot on the, a lot of the Western countries and nations. We talk about maybe sending birth control and stopping with the food when in reality, perhaps we should just stop sending guns and stop sending our garbage for people in India and Pakistan and South America to pick food for metals that we were too lazy to recycle and you know poisoning children all over the world. I don't know, I mean, I'm supposed going off on a lot of tangents, but it's really frustrating to hear. You know, especially after I'm just driving my car around and, you know, going through all enjoying my privilege as an American and then wondering, well, what can be done to stop people in world countries from having children? I mean, what those countries need and what the world need is development and education. They need all the things that the First World is, you know, actively doing to stop them from having, you know, dictators need to stop being supported and weapons need to stop being distributed. Just wanted to add that thought, and I also noticed that in the latest episode you put on that Mister Rogers clip that I recommended to you uh, a few weeks back. I don't know if that is you heard uh, independently from me or not, but it's. I'm glad it's on the air. Take it easy.
4: Hi Jay, this is uh, Emma at Wellesley College, and um, in the in anticipation of what. I'm guessing there'll be an upcoming show about gun control and violence and um, you know maybe our culture of violence and shooting that we show our children and things like that. I wanted to share a response that I haven't seen in the media and that I hope maybe you can dig up from somewhere on the left, and that is the critique of the way that we sort of obsess over what makes you know this guy different from the rest of us. Um, and I you know, it's coming out that, you know, we can now finally breathe a sigh of relief at finding out that he was a loner. It's turning out I think that he had Asperger's and I guess what I what I worry about is that by isolating this man into a small category of psychopaths that we can fix, we then can spend our grief and time talking about mental illness and thereby avoid having to talk about gun control. But I also think that we're going to start talking, we're going to be, as we have always been, talking about mental illness in a way that isn't helpful at all. We won't fix America's isolating and exacerbating stigmatization of mental illness by defining our national grief and discussion around the specific emotional qualities that made this man dangerous comforting to relegate this issue to the realm of crazy people because that way we can insulate ourselves from the humanity we share with the emotionally ill who become violent but in that paradigm the solution is to fear people who are loners and people who are depressed who's a large and important and generally nonviolent group and this compounds the sense of isolation that these people feel and so what I see in the news is that people are getting their introduction to something like Asperger's through an association with a horrific crime. And, you know, people who have Asperger's, are not. that's not typical at all. And, you know, I, I just think that it's important for somebody in the media to point out that we have this social desire to normalize the abnormal among us by means of punishment, medication, etc., and we use opportunities like this one in Connecticut almost for entertainment to so obsess over how exactly this shooter was abnormal. Um, and I, I think it's—I think it's a broader societal phenomenon that's going to trip us up. You know, if we want to focus on mental illness instead of gun control, we should at least do it in the right way, in in a way that doesn't exacerbate the problem. So I don't know if anybody out there has. um has done any really good reporting of this phenomenon that we have, you know. I feel like somebody needs to explain to viewers the way that we insulate ourselves from real discussion about gun violence and mental illness stigma by linking horrific crimes to loners. I mean, I'm a loner, you know, like speaking as someone who is a loner and, and knows that people kind of think I must be a sad person, you know, I really hope that, to see this issue addressed somewhere because it's the problem is not these people. The problem is our culture of violence. Anyway, um sorry, that was kind of long, but it's something that I really care about and I think that, you know, a show like yours could could either address it on its own or, you know, you having the access to these other forms of media, maybe somebody's doing that and I haven't found it. Um but I just wanna see it out there. Anyway, great show this past one. Um long time listener. <laughs> Keep up the good work.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. A couple of quick responses uh, to uh, Daniel, the first caller, and, and his question about the Mr. Rogers segment. He he had actually called in left a message letting me know that that segment existed and what the air date was for it and, and suggest that I go grab it. And although I actually had heard it, independently of, of his message, I had forgotten to write it down and and had forgotten of its existence. And so I was very happy when he called in, gave me the date so I could go find it myself and and put it in the show. So thanks uh, to him for doing that. And a blanket thanks to anyone ever who writes into the show, giving me suggestions on clips that they think should be aired. Uh, It's actually a great help and and honestly some of the best clips that get onto the show come from listener suggestions because you know they find some amazing thing on YouTube that's really inspirational or you know some show and they just you know highlight it to me and uh and a lot of times I haven't already heard it so please keep those coming in anyone who comes across anything that they think sh- uh should go in the show and then secondly to uh Emma the second call I I think frankly you did a much better job than I could have bringing up that topic. I think, I think you succeeded in your quest to have that uh, perspective shown in the media. Uh, I'm happy to air it. Uh, I I definitely come down on, on that issue. You know, every time I hear of a horrible shooting or, you know, anything along those lines, my first thought goes to mental health. Like, like gun control isn't my knee jerk. My, my knee jerk is only crazy people do these sorts of things. And, why can't crazy people get the help they need um but i don't know how to talk about that issue in a sensitive way it, exactly as as you just described how do you not stigmatize uh people like that how do you not otherize and, and you know simply make them something to be feared and you know shunned by society and you know all the types of people who suffer from mental illness but aren't the least bit dangerous you yeah, know i don't have the first idea of how to broach subject like that. And so I thank Emma for calling in and giving her perspective on it. I thought that was a great start and absolutely encourage anyone else who wants to follow up on that or, you know, as she was looking for any segments from progressive media outlets who may be talking about it again, similar to, uh, you know, the first comment, if, if anyone comes across anything like that, that they think belongs in the show, please let me know. I would uh, love to bring that perspective in. So that is just about it for today, but I want to reiterate my plea uh, for anyone listening to help raise money for climate change uh, based on the fact that I am jumping into freezing cold water in January. Uh, it's the annual Polar Bear Plunge event that is being put on by the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. It's my local uh, organization that does work in the uh, Maryland, D.C., and Virginia area. So if you're local, then they're your group too. And if you're not local, these are the guys who are on the ground in the nation's capital helping organize events you know, at You know, the White House or the Capitol building or whatever, uh, you know, Keystone XL pipeline, they were there. They were the guys on the ground working with 350.org and all the other, uh, you know, big national groups that came in. Like they were the ones with uh, volunteers on the ground to help make that happen. So uh, that's the organization that I used to work for. And although I have no connections to them anymore, I am happy to raise money for them. So if you are, Sympathetic to that idea, um, please consider going to a bitly link, bit.ly, bit.ly slash J's plunge, all one word, all lowercase, and that is where you can donate. I've set a goal for uh, $2,000, and I already donated myself uh, t- to the cause, so I'm putting my money where my mouth is besides just the fact that I'm jumping in water. Uh, my mother has donated. Thanks, Mom. And uh, with the help of all the other listeners and anyone else I can wrangle uh, by email and so forth, um, I have no doubt we can reach that $2,000 mark. So again, go to bit.ly slash Plunge. So thanks to everyone who checks that out, and thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks for those who support the show directly. Uh, you can do that by becoming a member or making donations directly to the show. That is how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word about individual clips you particularly like through your social networks. All that can be done through the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music use in this and every episode, all that information is always Posted in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast. Coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
2: We'll take you out in the open door this is not my life it's just a fun farewell to a friend it's not what I'm like